When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I get so many messages from women who say, my son is abusive. My daughter is abusive. And thank you for actually allowing me to come to terms with what could happen if I allow this to keep going in the same manner. Not that that onus of responsibility is on the victim, but there are practices that can be put into place that make it a safer environment that my mom didn't know at the time. Amy Chesler and her mom, Hadass, had that mother-daughter, best-friend type of relationship. It was open, honest, and full of love. Hadass was a respected public school teacher and a single mother to Amy and her brother, Jesse. Money was tight, and they moved around a lot as kids, but they eventually settled in Calabasas, California. You know, living on one parent's salary was hard, especially in Calabasas, but my mom wanted to give us as good of life as possible. And my brother started getting picked on. We both did, actually. It wasn't the easiest childhood, I would say, with the moving and the bullying. But my brother definitely navigated it differently and had different tools that did not include resiliency and tenacity that I suppose I did. At a young age, Amy and Jesse began to change in very different and significant ways. Jesse became angry, and he took out his frustration in harmful and abusive ways. Amy took on a peacemaker role, and she became a target for Jesse's anger. But tragically, it was her mom, Hadass, that paid the ultimate price. It evolved all the way until the year he murdered my mother, September 25th, 2007, which became National Murder Victims Remembrance Day in all of America. That exact day, the date of her murder, became the day I am joined with all other murder victims. Yeah, he he took her life. Today, we're speaking with author, podcaster, and domestic violence advocate, Amy Chesler, on her fight for justice for her wonderful mother. We're also talking about the very real subject of sibling abuse, and the numbers will shock you. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, and we are officially back for another season of stories of hope and possibility on the other side of pain. I've heard you say you moved over 30 times. So why were you moving so frequently? Yeah, um, so finances were tight. My mom was handicapped for a large portion of my, like from 1994, which was when I was in fourth grade, till about when I was in 10th grade. So she was unable to work. She was on workers' comp, but workers' comp wasn't willingly paying her. She wasn't able to make rent. And then we would have to find a different living situation. We moved a lot. 
We lost a home that we owned very early on in, in our experience in Calabasas too. So it was just a very precarious financial situation that caused us to have precarious home situations as well. And what was the source of the bullying, both you, both for you and your brother? Oh, goodness. Um, so we're both really short. My brother is like, I think he's at full grown. He was like five, six. I'm four, nine. So uh, it was that. It was uh, we were, you know, relatively poor by Calabasas standards. So my clothes were like my brother's hand-me-down clothes from a three-year-old <laughs> older brother. I, we were picked on for clothes, not having the cool ones. I was picked on for being quote unquote ugly. I, it was kind of commonplace for kids in Calabasas when they hit an age to have plastic surgery. I didn't have that until out of high school. So <laughs> I know this sounds like absolutely strange and weird and unrealistic, you know, outside of the realm of reality. But um, that's where we grew up. And it deeply, I think, affected it affected both of us, but I think it affected my brother a lot more. I did create friendships that were meaningful and lasting in the area. And I also, I was getting picked on at home by my brother more than anything. You know, sibling abuse affects 50% of children in America. I was a statistic that I didn't know about at that time, but he was picking on me deeply. So any bullying I faced at school paled in comparison and School offered me a big enough reprieve and a, a big enough haven from my brother. I want to delve into your brother's abuse, and I'm so grateful for you in learning about your story and understanding sibling abuse and just the language around that and what that looks like. I think it's really important. But I know, as you mentioned, as complex and difficult as your brother Jesse was, you were moving, your mom was a single mom, and there were times when you were, you felt close with him or sort of this shared experience. So was there a time early on where you felt tied to your brother or close to your brother? I mean, I would say so early on, I would say by the time he was in fourth grade and I was in first grade, he was more of a liability and a fear of mine, although he hadn't quite started to abuse either of us yet. He was still very volatile at that age. He was, I mean, he was punching holes in walls by like sixth grade. So I think that some of the closeness that was curated to, I was a fulcrum. So when I look back, some of my memories where I was like, oh, yes, we're friends, <laughs> it was actually born from like, oh, no, I had to keep him with me to keep him calm and away from mom because she was his greatest, I guess, trigger. So, yeah, it's just very layered. And what was he like previous to that? Was this something where something was always off from the beginning or was there an onset or a first memory of when he started to show these behaviors? It's a really interesting question you ask that. Everything in retrospect is easier to see, right? When we have a greater perspective. So at my mom's funeral, actually, my brother's preschool teacher came up to me and told me who she was. I didn't know her <laughs> and said, I was your brother's preschool teacher. I'm so sorry for your loss. He was different then. And I kind of prodded as quickly as I could because it was a busy event and a lot of people were there trying to talk to me. 
And she's somebody I would actually see over the years very sporadically. So I would ask her questions too. And she said he was just a quiet, sullen kid at that time, which, you know, even in preschool when he was three and I was just an infant in essence, I don't think that that means that quiet, sullen kids always go down his path. But I always say, I don't think everything happens for a reason. That's what my life has taught me. But I think everything happens for a million reasons. And I think my brother ended up being who he is now for a million reasons. And one of the first ones was he was a little detached. He was affected by my dad's leaving. He was quiet and sullen already. Then as he grew up, he was picked on and he grew more entitled and angry. And we were in the years of the 90s where mental health, we don't have the same language that we do now. We don't have the same approaches. We were turned away from the mental health systems. You know, there were therapists who, as his volatility grew, he would abuse his therapist verbally or the environment in their office physically. And he, they would stop seeing him. And that's how he would get out of going to therapy. My mom grew exhausted of finding him new therapists all the time. So the mental health system didn't step in in a more effective way. Every kind of organization or facility that could have intervened in a different way that might have given him a little bit more support, none of them did. And so my mom was kind of left alone with him as her problem, quote unquote. Yeah. So, you know, you've talked about this, but really high IQ and a master manipulator. Yes. So as you just shared, looking at anything on its face value really tells you nothing. Yeah. I do want to break down the different types of abuse that were happening to both you and your mom, Hmm. because I personally learned from you and learned new language, and I hope our listeners do too. So the environmental abuse, what is environmental abuse and how was Jesse abusing your environment and your mom's environment? Yeah, no, um, I think that's a really interesting, important question to speak to the nature of abuse in general. Well, I think that just the general definition of abuse is sometimes misconstrued. Abuse can be anything really in the sense that where one person has a power of the other And they utilize that to manipulate or control the other person. So what my brother did, he abused us in many ways. He used language, verbal abuse. He used emotional and mental abuse. You know, he would hack my mom's dating accounts and type filthy things to men. That is emotional and mental, verbal. He would physically and environmentally abuse us in the sense that, you know, people often think physical abuse means hitting, choking, physical abuse to your body. I believe physical abuse can also be to your property. There were pockmark holes all over our walls in many of our homes throughout my childhood because that's how virtually it started. So my brother first became violent and moody and angry in about fourth grade. Then in about seventh grade-ish, he sexually abused me. Now, something I like to share, which that sounds really crazy coming out of my mouth, and I only snicker because if a younger Amy had ever heard her say, something I like to share about the sexual abuse I faced would be absolutely mind-blown because I didn't even share it with my mother. I took it to her grave, I would, but I promised myself I would never take it to my grave. Something really pervasive about the abuse that I faced at my brother's hands sexually was that he never touched me. 
but he blackmailed me in order to force myself to touch myself in front of him. So I had years where I didn't even know that was an abuse, but that was exerting power over me to elicit a behavior or manipulate me. So that was how it started. The sexual abuse started and stopped relatively quickly because he was caught, in essence. My mom never knew what he did, but his emotional abuse was so pervasive, he once wrapped in front of my mom, wrapped his pinky around another pinky, kind of like swirling it around to signify he had me wrapped around his finger right after he asked me to do something. And my mom saw that and said, what was that? And confronted him. And I eventually told her that he was blackmailing me. I didn't tell her what he had made me do. But I said, you know, he was making me do his chores and things like that. And she kiboshed it immediately. And that kind of negated the sexual abuse as well that day. I never really did report it to her, How, like I said. But that is the progression of the abuse. Eventually, it became so violent and so physical. It was no longer physical pockmarks. It was shoving my mom, who was disabled, to the ground, who couldn't get up herself. It became um, smacking her. It became um, kicking me. I was cooking once in the kitchen, not even looking at the entrance. And he just came up behind me and kicked me between my legs. And his excuse was eventually after, you know, when I asked him why he did it, he said he just wanted to know if it hurt a woman to be kicked there. And yeah, it just evolved all the way until the year he took her life. Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, thank you for sharing all of that. And the sexual abuse in particular, I'm happy for you that you're not taking that to the grave and and you're finding some healing and speaking it out loud. Oh, me too. The number of messages I receive that say me too. I mean, it's just appalling. Like I said, 50% of children and mostly girls are the biggest faction of sibling abuse. And at an alarming rate, sexual abuse occurs between siblings as well. It's extremely validating for me to share, not only just to educate people, but also just to hear you know, me too. I kind of tell everybody there's so much solace in finding community. As heartbreaking as it is, there's there's comfort in knowing where we aren't alone. Well, I could I could hear it in your voice. I know it's not easy to share, and and thank you for doing that because I do know that it makes others feel less alone. So, how old was Jesse when he received a diagnosis and? I know there's some deeper discussion and feelings about the accuracy of that diagnosis and how he used the diagnosis and the label to manipulate. But what was the diagnosis and where was he, you know, age-wise and in his life? And how old were you at that time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And thank you for phrasing it the way you did. Because the conversation of his mental health is very delicate for me, and I perhaps may be a little insensitive, but I'm coming again from it being very weaponized. People don't realize, again, in abuse, anything virtually can be weaponized if the abuser is shrewd enough, but he definitely weaponized his his mental health diagnoses, especially in a time where we didn't have the understanding of his specific diagnoses. So to break it down, I think I was about 12 and a half, and he was about 15 and a half, 16, And we were in what the mental health system was in, what, 1992, 1993 versus 
30 years later now, and we've seen leaps and bounds happen. But back then, he was given the label of bipolar disorder, and that I believe he was one of the youngest people in America diagnosed with that, because at that point, only people that were about 20 or 21 and over had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So he was given the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, Tourette syndrome, and OCD. Those are his official diagnoses. You know, what happened to you in the experience of growing up in a home with Jesse and the tornado and the trauma that that was? One of the really specific things I think you talk about, which is so important, is domestic abuse. And I think most people hear domestic abuse and they think it is a spouse. And they don't think, they don't immediately or perhaps ever go to sibling abuse. A hundred percent. So what is sibling abuse and what is it not? Well, um, sibling abuse is what I faced for many, many, uh, I just actually, it felt like it ended about three weeks ago, to be honest. But um, for 26 years, I faced sibling abuse. I will say that. And sibling abuse is when a sibling uses their power, whether that comes from being elder, you know, an elder sibling, or if it becomes from a power dynamic that they've created, whatever it is, and it doesn't have to be an older sibling, it could be a younger sibling. However, more it is more often an older sibling, just speaking statistically, and it's more often a brother, an older brother abusing a younger sister. It could be emotional. It could be mental. It could be physical. It could be sexual. It could be virtually anything, weaponizing whatever tools they have in order to elicit a behavior or manipulate someone into doing something they wouldn't necessarily do. It's virtually coercive control, but between siblings. And yeah, it's not, goes without saying, but to be clear, it's not sibling rivalry. It's not jealousy. It's not competition. It's not, you know, fighting over your parents' attention. This is control, manipulation, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Yes. And he is inflicting all of that on you. Yes. And I will say this, though. I think it is a bit more pervasive than we realize because people can be abusive in certain events and then not be in abusive relationships, right? We can reflect on things and think, oh, I love my brother. We had this great relationship. But there was this one event, right? Things like that happened as well. Abuse is definitely a spectrum. Nothing is cut or dry, but it's not abuse or not abuse also. I think that, you know, I'm just to an example, I know I'm jumping ahead, but when my book came out, One of the first people that reached out to me was my uncle, my dad's brother. And he said, thank you for naming something that I faced at the hands of your dad. And I had known, I had heard stories growing up about how my dad treated his younger siblings, especially his younger brother, who I'm very close with now. But he had no name for it in the 50s, right? My dad would put an apple on his brother's head and shoot it off with a metal-tipped bow and arrow. That is a story I heard. And growing up, I didn't realize that was sibling abuse. But it is very much sibling abuse. That's emotional and mental and almost physical because he could have hurt him very deeply or killed him. You know, it's just a very nuanced, layered situation. However, yes, it is not sibling rivalry. It is not healthy competition. It is abuse and manipulation and coercion. That's really helpful to think of it as 
a spectrum and nuance because then it doesn't negate somebody's experience that was traumatizing or (laughs) damaging just because it wasn't blatant sexual abuse violence. So So I do think that's really helpful. As Jesse gets older, certainly your mom's world gets smaller. Hmm. And I know there were things she loved, like hosting and entertaining, that were no longer really possible or an option for her with what was happening in the house. And even you stopped having friends over. Again, his rage and destruction and the unpredictability of it all. But there's a a point where your mom's in the house with Jesse, she's disabled, and things are getting really small and really dark. And she gives you this sort of blessing or call, permission to go out and find joy and connection in the world. That freedom and encouragement to, I almost saw it as like, I just want so much more for you than what's happening in this house. Like, go out there and experience it. So can you tell me about that? Oh, God, if I can breathe through my tears. (laughs) I've never actually had anyone ask that question so delicately and so beautifully. Sorry. (laughs) If you could give me a moment, because I love when I can honor my mom and that side and the positive sides of her. But um, yeah, you know, my mom... I think that my mom had grieved and dealt with some serious shit and abuse in her life too. And she was a very resilient, tenacious woman who was strong and relatively level-headed in most areas, except when dealing with my brother, because she was just resourceless to a certain degree. So when she saw the extent of the abuse, and although she didn't really know the actual extent of my personal abuse, but she saw him get worse and his violence snowball. And that's something that I forgot to mention in terms of abuse too. When someone is abusive and there aren't just specific abusive events or things that happen that are traumatic, but an abusive relationship, things will build. Things will, I say, they're often cyclical and snowballing in nature. So not only will they not stop, but they'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. And especially as things like that got happened, even when she was handicapped and couldn't necessarily drive me many places, I was learning and getting my permit. I was learning to drive her places. Anytime my mom could allow me a freedom that I had quote unquote earned by just proving my autonomy and my trust in her and her trust in me. Yeah, she gave me so many different opportunities. I love to speak to those. I worked for the sheriff's department for a summer camp. I was working for their DARE program and she would just let me and I would do- I donated 3000 of my hours of my summers in high school. I gosh, I I went and stayed for weekends in high school and like conventions. I was in like the debate club. <laughs> And she let me go to conferences that we had for that club. She allowed me these freedoms. I think she saw because she was a teacher, because she had her master's in education, that kids needed different parents. So I'm just really thankful. My mom knew that I had to get out. You know, like by 17, I was working for Corey Feldman. Like, who does that? She got me a job. My mom actually got me a job working for Arnold Schwarzenegger too. So those are my two first bosses at the age of 17. 
Um, Did you have a Corey Feldman like fan site blog because I'm obsessed with you? <laughs> yes, I totally know. That's so funny. I totally did. It was so the cheesiest thing ever. And that's what my, got me the job with Corey Feldman. He found or I maybe sent him <laughs> that website and he was like, oh, cool. You make websites. Can you manage mine? Um, yeah. So that's and my mom actually made like a deep friendship with Corey eventually. And he invited her like to the 20th anniversary of the Goonies as his date. Like it was just, she was just that person. Whenever my brother was not involved, she was the lightest, happiest human. And it's not that she wanted to be unhappy around him. He was just so abusive. And it was just a really cyclical, abusive relationship she was stuck in, similar to the one she was stuck in with my dad before until my dad left her. So I just don't know if she had the tools to equip her to leave him, my brother, but she definitely gave me the tools to rise above the situation we were stuck in. And you cultivated joy, found joy in very specific things, creative expressions of yourself and outlets yeah, I loved learning about those. So where did you find joy? Oh, I love that. Um, well, I've always been a consumer, like in the sense that I love pop culture. Um, so I remember finding joy in movies and books. I always have said books. Well, as soon as I could verbalize this, I think books were the ch- are the cheapest vacation. I would escape in fiction a lot as a child. I loved Ray Bradbury. I loved writing and reading. And as early as first grade, I remember my teachers really, really, really fortifying in me that I was a good writer. So I'm so thankful for all of those adults that poured into my efforts and talents. I danced a lot in high school. I was on the dance team all four years. I found joy and healing in in bodily movement and physical representation of my feelings, even if I was just dancing in my room alone. (laughs) Um, And I think that I just kind of kept developing those in college. I found joy in my sorority, filling roles for that group of women. And yeah, I just, I, I kind of always, my mom infused in me that that no man is an island, no woman is either. You know, we can't do things alone. Community is important. As small as her life or her social circle had to get at one point, she was always someone who had good friends and hobbies and passions. And I saw her turn towards art and I saw her turn towards her friends and I saw her build me up. And all those things were key in my survival and my ability to kind of transform my heartache and trauma into something better as well. And you know, another thing that I learned, I actually knew, but it made me think about it, is I knew from a societal standpoint, when you have a child or when your mom had Jesse, who was acting, behaving, destructing, traumatizing in the way that he was, society almost blames the parent as a failure that you can't control your kid, it's a bad kid, that somehow the parent has failed or not succeeded in raising a healthy, balanced, nonviolent child. And 
that alone, you know, I would imagine adds a layer of shame and isolation. So did you feel that from a social and community standpoint that was happening to your mom? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the thing is, is, again, in Calabasas in the 90s, as a single-parent household, there were very few single-parent households, period. I think we were like one of two, if not three, and in a whole community and city of 28,000 people. I mean, you know, and so it was a different time. The language was different. The school basically kicked out my brother because he was volatile and getting in so many fights and told him to get his GED and test out of high school without even consulting my mother. So my mom had no support. She went to the school system and was like, what? How could you dare? How dare you tell my child to get out of here without even talking to me about it? So she had no support from the school system. She had called the cops many times and didn't really have support. They kept kind of sending him back to us. You know, mental health professionals didn't really help him again either, turned him away. So my mom really was solo in everything. To top it off, there was also my dad who was, he never really lived far. He only lived in Orange County. We live in Calabasas. It's, it's an hour and a half with nasty traffic maybe. And that was generally his excuse. Oh, the traffic's so bad today. Um, but he was a, he's a severe alcoholic who was very, very unreliable, did not pay child support, did not give my mom resources if we ever called him. So my mom literally was alone in the entire situation. So I'm sure to a certain degree, she felt he was her cross to bear, but society does not help in any way either. I mean, um, there's a lot of victim shaming in some sense, in just natural conversation, but especially for a parent with an abusive child. And unfortunately, there are very few systems in place and practices in place that really do help people who have children who are highly abusive. I get messages from women who say, I was abused by my brother too. Thank you for helping add words and context and community to my experiences. But I also, on the flip side, get so many messages from women who say, my son is abusive. My daughter is abusive. And thank you for actually allowing me to come to terms with what could happen if I allow this to keep going in the same manner. Not that that onus of responsibility is on the victim, but there are practices that can be put into place that make it a safer environment that my mom didn't know at the time. Conversation is always the first step. Awareness is always the first step to change, right? So I, these are the conversations that need to happen because I think it's way more common than people actually realize. When we come back, Amy and her mom Hadas have an encounter with a psychic. Yes, you heard that right. That would set into motion a life-changing gift for Amy. Back in a moment. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For her donation... Amy chose the Army of Survivors. The Army of Survivors works to eliminate sexual violence against athletes, changing the systems to prevent abuse in sports and stand with survivors in their fight for justice. You can find out more about them and get involved by visiting their website, thearmyofsurvivors.com. 
www.thepeacefulpeoplesocial.org. Time passes. You go to college, study psychology, wonder why. (laughs) Yeah, go figure. I know your brother's in and out of jail. He's buying guns on Craigslist. He went to Oklahoma, but always coming back. As you're building your life in college and becoming a young adult and dating and, you know, finding your passions, I know your mom starts to get better and actually fulfills her dream of becoming a high school teacher. (laughs) She wrote a math book that she was selling. So she really was, it sounds like at least as he got older, finding her way back into the world. And during that time, you went to a psychic, you had this amazing experience, and then your mom went as well. What did the psychic share with you? Was it anything specific to your brother or your family or your future? So it was really interesting. Um, In college that we found this psychic, you know, I went to CSUN, Cal State Northridge, and right in that area, I don't know how we stumbled on her, but she's like referral only, this older woman, like pushing 90, who reads your palm and your Turkish or um, coffee, like tea leaves or whatever, um, the, the coffee grinds. And I went to her and she was really relatively amazing. She told me some crazy stuff that had just happened, that would happen, that did happen. And I, I was just kind of blown away. And knowing my mom, she was really into that. You know, she's very spiritual, very kind of open-minded in terms of she believed in guardian angels. So she um, went. And when she finished, she came home. I remember chatting with her afterwards. And I was prodding her to kind of get to see what the psychic said because she didn't seem happy necessarily. The psychic hadn't shared anything really negative with me. She had been largely positive. So when my mom came home and was like zapped and negative, I was kind of shocked. And I asked her to share with me what she said. And she never really shared with me per se what she would did say. However, Maybe a couple of weeks after that, she got her, I think, 20th life insurance policy. And that is not an exaggeration. When I went through her paperwork, she literally had about 20 life insurance policies. And they were all different. Like one of them would have covered her if she had cancer. One of them would have covered her with a heart attack. And there was one policy that she got in the last year before she died. And it was the one policy that named just me. And it was the one policy that covered accidental death, which also covered murder. And this took place right after she saw this psychic. And although she never did tell me outrightly what the psychic said, I did visit the psychic again. And I kind of mentioned my mom and the psychic kind of went crazy and did confirm. And I remember when she had that conversation with me, she told me about the policy. It was actually driving home from jail. My brother was in men's central jail. And I remember... We were sitting in her car and she just turned to me and said, I got a life insurance policy. It only covers you. She did tell me, you know, hey, it is a little bit of money over a long period of time because I want to be able to take care of you in case something happens because I feel something will happen. And it was a hard conversation. It was one I do not wish on anybody. And I was in a bit of a denial. And I actually forgot about the policy until I had to... 
utilize it. But it just goes to show the reality my mom was living in that, you know, she didn't really know how to get out of it. She didn't really know how to stop supporting my brother, but she also knew she had to support me and, and consider me deeply as well. You know, whatever you're comfortable sharing, the day you lost your mom, what do you remember about that day, you know, the early hours leading up to the discovery that your brother had killed her? Yeah, so that September 25th, 2007 was virtually like any other day for me, I suppose. And for the family, you know, it was a little tense. I got that from some phone calls that I'd received throughout the day. I was working. I had just graduated college, so I had no school. I was directing an after-school program. So I was coming home, and I could sense there was this building tension throughout the day as I got phone calls from my mom and my brother. It was, you know, first my mom kind of calling to check in when I was at work, and I was busy. I didn't really know anything was wrong, but there was always something kind of wrong when they were both home. So it wasn't it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, but it kind of did register a little bit. But on the last phone call, my brother asked me if I was coming home anytime soon. I basically said I still have to go back to work. He wanted me to watch like Quantum Leap with him. And I guess like he wanted to just me to step in and kind of diffuse his anger, which was what I was hearing build. And I told him I couldn't, not until later, perhaps, and that I would call him on my way home. And that was the last time I talked to my brother. The last time I talked to my mom, I basically told him virtually the same thing. She was asking me when I'd be home. I said, not till later. And I said, okay, bye. And that was the last time I talked to my mom. And then um, when my work shift was over, around 10, 10, 15 at night, I headed home and I called my brother because I was like, hey, you want to watch Quantum Leap now? First couple times, I think he didn't pick up. Then my mom didn't pick up when I called home. And I started getting frantic because my mom, single woman, never dated, teacher, in home, in ho- at home by five or six, in bed by 10. So she, you know, if I'm calling on her landline at 10 p.m., she'd definitely pick up, did not pick up. So I called my brother back. And after a few phone calls, he told me not to go home because he killed mom. And at first I didn't believe him, but then he switched off his phone and mom still wasn't picking up. And it hit me that even if this was a sick joke, which sometimes he would, I mean, he was a sick fuck. He really was. You know, he kicked me in the vagina for no reason. He shot me with a BB gun and painted it all black first to make me think I was about to die. Um, Like it, he was, he, he gained joy from a sick joke. So I guess I weighed the pros and cons of it being a sick joke and calling the 911, you know, without reason. And I called 911 on the way home. By the time I got home, I was on the phone with them. They told me, ma'am, don't go inside. The killer might be inside. I was kind of already half in, if you will, in the house by that point. And I also just wanted to see my mom. And God forbid my mom was okay or dying in the process of dying. I wanted to be able to help save her. I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what the state was. I didn't know if he was lying. I just wanted to see. And very quickly after entering the home, I found her in the kitchen, which was her favorite room in the house. It brought her the most joy. You mentioned her hosting. Cooking was a large portion of that. And she was 
lying on the kitchen floor with the knife still in her neck. It was jarring. It was heartbreaking. It changed my life forever in that instant um, in an infinite amount of ways. But at that very moment, which is something I wouldn't realize at that time, but eventually the perspective I gained was I was also freed from my brother's abuse that day. I sometimes think that my mom, my mom knew this was going to happen, or at least she feared it. And I think that she um, sacrificed her life to a certain degree for me to be free of his, or she thought she was freeing me of, not that she allowed this to happen, but um, you know, I just, it seemed symbolic to me as time went on that that was the day that I would no longer have to physically be around my brother much longer. So I know you've shared before leaving the house that you hugged her leg to hold her mm. and that police start flooding the street. And you talked about the helicopters and mm. and then you mentioned, I don't know if it was in the moment after realizing it, that it was the news, that it was mm. like the news. There's something about that that just... yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Um, and that kind of will start my very long, <laughs> arduous relationship or tedious or very layered relationship with the media. But yes, um, that night, yeah, I, I ran out of the house. And I just remember the moment I walked out of the house, the police were either there or they pulled up the moment I did. It was basically like timing out of a movie. And I started talking to the sheriff's deputies immediately. There were I guess I assumed they were police choppers overhead because Jesse was not caught yet, right? He had escaped. I didn't know where he was. So I'm thinking those were cop helicopters going overhead. Eventually, I found out those were the news helicopters. And a lot of loved ones found out about my mom's murder from the local news. And that I, I can't remember contacting a lot of people, but by, you know, an hour into this search for Jesse... There were so many people that came to my home, and it speaks to the community that my mom left me with. But, you know, two houses down was her best friend from seventh grade. So he came out, um, and in the days after, he would be the one that would clean up the murder scene. People don't know that there are no services from provided by the police. Once they take samples and evidence, they're gone. My boss came just people came, my ex-boyfriend who lived up the street, people were finding out, and I didn't realize they were finding out from the news choppers overhead, basically. Yeah. It was a very shocking evening. And eventually they found Jesse, and it was not lost on me that when your mom freed you to go build relationships in the community to be with friends and teachers and neighbors, to have a life outside that home, that it was that very thing that wrapped you in love that night. You know, had you been isolated, trapped there, you know, trying to adult and care, but all those connections that she was able to build and you were able to build was this swell of love and support that saved you in a sense, or at least held you up. And that that was ultimately a gift from her. Absolutely. Um, there were so many gifts she she left with me and so and left me with and so many lessons she left me with. But immediate community and eternal community was one of them. Absolutely. And I, I said earlier, no man is an island. No woman is either. That is 
you know, I live by a few credos uh, and that's one of them is that, you know, none of us can do this absolutely alone. We need resources. We need help. We need love. We need support. And I think that in her absence, people felt like action was necessary. And that's, I think that nobody, I, I speak to so many other survivors and so many other victims and the community isn't immediate. Even if people had love and cultivated that, people don't always step up. They don't always offer that. I'm just so lucky to have had a parent who was so impactful on the people that she interacted with that they felt compelled to give me that back. You know, I don't think people always think about it, but A, it's the beginning of the trauma and the grief, and there's funerals and paperwork and investigators and finances and belonging and police officers and traumatic shock. I mean, all of this. But I know the funeral, you've said it actually helped you and the Jewish religion and tradition that you bury the body within a couple of days. And as we've talked about, your mom loved to entertain <laughs> and bring people together. And that that was somewhat of a cathartic moment for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My mom was buried near her parents. You know, I, it was as traumatic as it was to pick a coffin and pick a plot and pay for said plot at 22 and all within a week. And then there was also the time crunch. Like, are they going to be done with the autopsy? I don't think they really, I can't remember exactly how it was, but there might've been like a spare day or two that we had to get approval for or whatever. But in essence, once I got to say goodbye to her, I cultivated a list of speakers. It was huge. There were over 500 people there. I didn't even get to see the outside during the eulogy part, but I was told there were like TVs erected outside. So the people outside could see there weren't like, so my sorority sisters, fraternity brothers that had met her, like my mom was so involved and loving and supportive that as much as she didn't want me to join a sorority, the moment I did, she saw the value. She just had come in with preconceived notions. And one Mother's Day, I had taken her to the fraternity house that I hung out with all the time so she could see the house I was at all the time. And I remember like a couple brothers got down on bended knee to welcome her. And like that was, that was, <laughs> that was who... Jessie took from the world. She threw a student a baby shower like a month before she was murdered. And that girl gave birth the day after my mom was murdered because of the shock. She called my mom, mom. And that was who my brother stole from the community. And I think that that day during her funeral, the community came out like people from always and ever throughout her life. So that meant a lot to me how I, I felt infused with love and just that love buoyed me and it gave me a, a mission that day and it gave me a mission today and it gives me a mission every day to kind of persist the good heart, the good love, the justice-minded, the high values that my mom propagated in me. It's just... Yeah, I, I I do that daily, but I think that it probably started that day. I think that day was relatively transformative for me to see the masses come out for her. Sorry, it's a long ass answer about a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> 
In the wake of the grief, the trauma, the pain, the loss, the million layers, what did you find most helpful in your process of healing, which will be a lifetime process, but in the months and years, how did you begin to heal and move forward? Um, I love that question. I think that um, giving myself grace and knowing that grief is not linear is a huge thing. Things that happen in our lives can be really triggering, traumas that, that also happen, to give myself grace through those as well. Because again, this is a lifetime event that I will be dealing with, not only because of what the mass amount of tragedy and abuse before, but also because of the abuse after in the legal system. Therapy has been a great tool. Somebody with the right approach and good communication patterns that help you heal and see your triggers is a huge thing. It's been immensely healing for me to share my journey. That's been really actually healing to take control of my narrative, to share the warning signs, to educate people, to take my mother's murder and make it less in vain has been really healing. To get it the fuck out too. That's super true. I, I didn't ask about language. I'm sorry, but- We um, love F-bombs. Okay. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Great. Okay. So uh, just, to, just to get it out, whether it's publicly or not, has been immensely healing. For me, private therapy was healing, but also just- Doing it publicly, again, because I am a storyteller by nature, it was really cathartic for me to do that on a public level too, and to hear and to build community, to hone community, to also just kind of, you know, remind people who my mom was. A lot of people on the internet and consumers of true crime like to immediately think, and this goes back to your question, well, did she abuse him or what was wrong or you know, find excuses. There's there's this comfort in distance that we have from my narrative to your narrative, right? People that are watching and listening to do crime want to think it can't happen to them. But abuse is very layered. It's a spectrum, like we said, and anyone can be on it if we take a really good look at our relationships and the mechanisms that people that we're in relationships with use. So it's been really freeing and healing for me to even share and educate other people too. Also, my children, just the love I have for them is so intense and ever-growing that it helps me heal too and knowing that there's hope. Also, just being really fucking tenacious because I did not give up. It took four years, but Amy's tenacity paid off. Many, many legal complexities aside, Jesse was finally convicted of second-degree murder. Not first, but second-degree Second degree meant a shorter sentence. And for Amy, that meant she still had to fear for her and her family's safety when Jesse would be released. Um, yeah, in essence, it took years to convict him because he played the system. Like I said, anything can be weaponized, but the legal system was weaponized by my brother. He's very shrewd, especially in that sense. And he would fire a lawyer, hire a lawyer, represent himself, Stop representing himself, get on meds, get off meds. Eventually, his last-ditch attempt was to hire a hitman from jail to try to kill me because he was getting out of jail. And the guy actually turned in the letters to the police, and that kiboshed his whole plan. And, like, literally maybe a week later, he pled guilty, finally, after many years. So his last-ditch attempt was to get rid of me, basically. So no one would be fighting to keep him in prison, in essence, I guess. Finally, he pled guilty, 
But he pled to, like you said, second degree murder. He got 15 to life. Technically, he got an extra year for using a knife to kill her. However, as things would play out, at 13 and a half years in California, if you serve 85% of your prison sentence, you are then eligible in the parole process. So after 13 and a half years of murdering my mother, only nine years after being convicted, I re-entered in the parole process. So I really only got a nine-year reprieve from him and his abuse. And there was like this death threat right above my head right before that. So it was just a whole mindfuck. Um, at 13 and a half years, he had a parole hearing. At the parole hearing... He ended up asking to be moved prisons, threatening to kill somebody if he was kept in the prison that he was in at the moment, then threatened my life, actually first threatened my life, like very explicitly was like, I'm going to come get you or somebody, I'm going to have a friend come get you and your kids basically. And then he postponed his hearing. That was in 2021. So I knew I was going to see him again in 2023. Finally, in March of 2023, just now, I received a call saying that he was actually postponing his hearing again. So his 2023 parole hearing was going to be postponed to 2025. So this is, again, after nine years, I was getting reinterjected every two years into the parole system. Long, long, long story short, I actually happened to get in contact with the DA charging him. And this magical, magnificent man proved to me, just like my brother's actions, 16 years before, that one person's actions can change somebody's trajectory in the same vein that DA changed my total trajectory. He was going after my brother for an attempted murder on a correctional officer. I found out. Basically, Jesse built a mace. I don't know if you know what that is, but it is a medieval weapon built of us. A circular ball of spikes on a chain. He built one in prison and attacked a correctional officer. So the DA was going after him for that. I had talked to him the week of his hearing I had taken two years to try to get the parole hearing transcript. I didn't get it until that day when the DA was helping me and the DA reviewed it. And he said, we can tack on extra time for this death threat too. And in the end, he got sentenced on April 17th to 36 more years in prison. They gave my mom retroactive justice. So something I didn't realize until like 10 or 12 years into my, my journey with my brother is that at 25 years and nine months old, he was considered a youth offender because in California, you have to be 26 to be an adult offender with murder. So he was actually being benefited through this whole process. Like at his parole hearing in 2021, the first sentence out of the parole board was, you are a youth offender. We will consider that as you discuss this with us. So he was being aided and abetted with that label. On April 17th, the judge that day took away that youth offender status. She said, Sir, if you have done all this shit up until now, you're no longer a youth offender. You are an offender, period. They gave him 30 to life for the attack on the correctional officer, which means, yes, he got more for an attempted attack on a correctional officer than the actual murder of his mother. They gave him six years for the death threat against me and my children, which felt so fucking validating. They gave me a 10-year restraining order, which before I made my victim impact statement, they told me, how about a 30-day restraining order? And they upped it after to a 10-year. And he's going to be in prison forever because those are his two extra strikes, and he already had one. So in California, if you have three strikes, you're basically almost never getting out. He also has two life sentences now, and I owe that to the DA and the diligence of someone. It was the most rapid three weeks of my life getting justice for this, and it played out in the craziest of ways, but I'm so thankful that it did. 
I love that. I love that for you. Thank you. I I have finally have legal freedom 16 years into this battle. I'm so happy for you. Um, closure is the wrong word, but that assurance and that timeline for you and how comforting that must be. Because I would imagine with all of the possibilities for parole, the safety of you, your children, and as you have said, the public safety, that mm. he would be profile 101 for a school shooter. You know, you're hearing it more in documentaries and television and podcasts, but certainly not enough where there's a disclaimer at the front specific to mental health, to sexual abuse. You have some really clear and passionate ideas and a voice around this, which I think is really important. Your trauma and what you observed from seeing someone murdered, in this case, your mother, down to the color of the blood, the choppers above, a million little things, that PTSD and that trauma lives with you. Mm. You are, goes without saying, managing that, I don't know if you would say a daily, a weekly, an hourly basis. And one of the things you have said is that I have seen it in real life. I do not need to see it on TV. So what change needs to happen in Hollywood and news so we, or creators, can producers, screenwriters, directors, be more conscientious, either on the front end of their films and their programs? What needs to change there? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. I think that a lot, but to begin with, I think the way we frame our stories and think of fictional stories, right? You don't ever end a movie with the bad guy winning and everything getting wrapped up with a neat bow on that or highlighting the bad guy, right? We're, we're generally on fictional stories. The hero wins. The hero is highlighted. However, in true crime stories, which is a massive genre right now, most of the time we're seeing the perpetrator being highlighted or we're seeing very little of the victim's voice being centered in the story. I think that that is absolutely detrimental to our society. It's creating fear that is somewhat based in reality, but also is sensationalized. I think what we need to be leaving in the true crime much more and leading with and leaving our listeners with or our viewers with is a narrative that's centered around the victim. How did they prevail? How did we overcome massive tragedy. Like that is where the ultimate lesson lies, even in true crime. Yes, we need to know warning signs about what made Jeffrey Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, or what were the signs where we know where his behavior started pivoting, whatever. But that does not need to be the central focus. The movie doesn't need to be entitled Dahmer. Uh, the, the victims don't need to not be talked to about the project beforehand, right? I'm actually friends with um, Rita Isbell now, whose brother was murdered by Jeffrey Dahmer. That movie was absolutely traumatic. And that just comes to mind because it was one of the most recent ones and the most talked about. But just that framing was so, I think, detrimental to the people that ultimately are the most valuable in the situation. 
the most valuable part of the situation, it was not highlighted in a proper way. And I think that's indicative of the genre and the way the media approaches it. And we, you can say that's what sells, but you can also say which came first, the chicken or the egg? Are they making it like that? And that's what consumers are buying or are the consumers wanting it? You know what? People can be trained to like things that are different. I don't think that anyone should like a podcast called My Favorite Murder. That is disgustingly insulting and highly offensive. And I'll bring it up any chance I can because from a victim's perspective, it's so insensitive and disgusting and perpetuating a cycle that's harmful to us. No murder should be your favorite. My mom's murder better not be your fucking favorite murder. I will tell you that is what I'm saying. So that's just indicative because it's one of the biggest shows that is indicative of where we're at as a society or where we're at in the creation of media. And that definitely has to shift. The narrative has to shift. Yeah. And the lens in which we view and share these stories from an ethical, compassionate human standpoint versus a sensate, these are people's lives. A hundred percent. So you are one of the people who is on the front line of change and rethinking true crime And you started a podcast to talk about true crime and share it in a way that is ethical, that is thoughtful, that is compassionate to the victims, that is responsible, where the scales do not tip in the favor of sensation or the murder. So I want you to tell me about starting your podcast and your your hope for it and your intention and how you're going to share these stories and why, why it's important to you. Yeah. So my experiences led us, and I say us, Tiffany Reese of Something Was Wrong, which is also a massive true crime self-help podcast in the top 10 of all shows in general, not just those categories. She and I, I shared my story on her podcast, season seven, and that was a very emotionally enlightening experience for me, but also it made me realize how much I like to work with Tiffany. I pitched to her the show, What Came Next? And we started making it. And basically what the idea is, is that we are highlighting the narratives of victims of a lot of notorious crimes throughout history, but also maybe crimes that haven't gotten as much media coverage as they deserve. And we're discussing the nature of a never-ending journey and how our healing is virtually almost always constant. We're talking about how leading and discussing our our healing and our trauma in the media affects our journey as well and how it's we're not just characters in a film. We're actually healing live for the most part for other people's benefit. And we're talking about the legal and lasting change we really want to make in this space for victims. Because I think, again, like I said, Awareness is the first step to change. And if I can talk about all these holes in the system, I can talk about my brother giving me death threats and still persisting in the same parole system and almost getting out with my, hanging over my head. People don't believe me because they don't believe it's real. But when we consume these stories in an honest and articulate way, we can heal from it too. So the point of what came next is also to, to just show that Hopefully, we can change what's coming next for future victims as well. Where do you find hope? Mm. I definitely find hope in community. I find hope in the people that have the courage to come out and speak to me and say, me too. I find hope in 
other victims that haven't necessarily been through the similar experiences, but share with me and I can find those ties that bind and I can find ways that we're healing. I find hope in the people that I interview on my podcast. They're all trying to be change makers. I find hope in my loved ones and the people that support me and that maybe don't know what I've been through or can't experience exactly what I've been through, but still support me. I find hope in my children because they're my everything and everything I do is for them and is for breaking the cycle in my family that has been on both sides for generations. And I find hope in conversations like this one, people that leave themselves open to our story, no matter how triggering or tedious it might be to listen or to think about all the issues in the system, the people that want to help us make change as well. All of that gives me hope. I believe she is watching you. Mm -hmm. Your mom is watching you. Do you feel that way? Oh, Lord, that's a really layered question. Um, I do and I don't at times. I leave myself open to it, but I never, and I never negate it entirely. And I find that when I really need her, I feel her, like I feel signs that she'll send me. My mom was a big believer in guardian angels and things like that. So I, I like to believe that she believed so deeply that if it existed, she is definitely watching. Like nothing could keep her from watching. That's for sure. That I know. <laughs> And all I know is that whether she's watching or not, I am making her proud in my efforts because I am, again, making this so it's not in vain. So, you know, if, if your mom was here today or if she is here as your guardian angel, what do you think your mom would think about the life and legacy you have created you know, she set you free in her death and beyond. What do you think she would look down or look to you and feel? God, I wish I knew I was going to cry so much before. <laughs> no, um, your questions are so insightful. I love it. Um, I think, oh God, my mom, I think she would be infinitely proud of me. She'd be a little pissed because I've gotten a lot more tattoos. <laughs> but um, I think back all the time, what got me out of there, what made me know I could survive, and that was her. So I think she'd be immensely proud because I not only have survived, I've absolutely thrived. Um, and I've made sure I have because you get one life, maybe, supposedly. <laughs> and I want to make the best of it, especially for her. She was just such a badass. And um, I think also, hopefully, I think she would look back and say, wow, I am a badass. And I hope I am proof of that. I hope I am proof of her own resiliency and tenacity and amazingness as well. Well, I think certainly in this conversation, you do a beautiful job of bringing her to life and celebrating her and who she was and her impact. And one of the pieces of your story I loved, just like heart explosion, um, was that you took that math book, her dream to create the book, and you went to Palm Springs to the book festival with her book and a student to sell her book after she had passed. And I just thought... There was a moment for you in that. And I don't know if I'm making it bigger in my head. 
Oh, no, it was massive. And that was one of those moments where I felt her so deeply because I actually met a guy there that, <laughs> that I felt like my mom would have fixed me up with. But that's all aside. It gets even better. I took my employee. I was the director of the after school program. One of my employees was actually one of my mom's former students. And she was her, my mom's math student. So if people can receive her and love her and revive her with their love, that's like the penultimate mission of mine. What do you hope people take away from your story? Oh gosh, this is something that's actually struck me recently, but it's something I've been saying as much as I can. I hope people realize how deep of an impact each person's actions can have on another person. That's speaking to my brother's actions. That's speaking to my mom's actions in her community. It's speaking to the DA's actions who stepped up a couple weeks ago, who who just believed in me a little extra and went the a little extra mile and is now has literally changed my entire life. My entire <laughs> approach to life has been changed by this one person's actions. I just actually got a tattoo a couple weeks ago. My first matching tattoo with my co-producer and the point of our shows is tikkun olam, which means it's a Jewish tenet that each person has a personal responsibility in healing the world. No person is greater or lesser than. No experiences are greater than lesser than. We all have the personal responsibility to make this world a better place than when we were brought into it. And I think that that is the same thing as every single person's actions carry weight And you have the ability to change things and the world and your life. And in the same vein, you have the ability to hurt and destroy. And we all carry that power and responsibility. And with great power comes great responsibility. That was just a lot of idioms at once. Sorry. (laughs) It was perfect. Thanks, Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. But yeah. (laughs) Amy, where can we find you, follow you, listen to your podcast? buy your book. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, You can find me on all social media at Amy, A-M-Y, B, as in boy, and then my last name, Chesler, C-H-E-S-L-E-R, on all platforms, really, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My book is available on Amazon. It is called Working for Justice, One Family's Tale of Murder, Betrayal, and Healing. I'm working on my next book, Working for Joy. I'm super excited about that one yet to be available though. And my podcast, What Came Next, is available on all podcasting platforms and on social media at What Came Next Podcast. And um, I'm just really thankful for this conversation, Kimmy. You're wonderful. Your questions are so freaking thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. I really am so grateful for your trust and you're just wise and intelligent and funny and brave. And I feel like we could totally be friends. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you so much, Kimmy. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Amy Chesler. If you're a victim of domestic violence and looking for support, Amy recommends checking out the website somethingwaswrong.org forward slash resources. There you will find a collection of nonprofits that are there to help victims in all sorts of areas, from mental health to crisis intervention and equal justice. Once again, that is somethingwaswrong.org forward slash resources. And don't forget to join us next Wednesday for a little wiser. 
when our producer Erica and I discuss this episode and get real and honest and personal as we like to do. Plus, we're going to give you a little behind-the-scenes peek of how we select topics for the show. Far more interesting than you would think. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was our associate producer, Tara Daigle. And that was our editor, composer, slash sound designer, John LaSala. And this is Kimmy Culp. So until next time, take care of yourself and each other. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.